Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Last summer, the Connor family was on vacation in Mexico when tragedy struck. The family of four had plans to meet up for dinner, but when their kids didn't arrive, Jenny and John became concerned. So they rushed to the front desk in hopes of finding a note from their kids, but instead they realized and found out that their kids were on their way to the hospital. Moments earlier, Abby, who was 20, and her brother Austin uh, had both been found face down in a pool at the resort. As the parents arrived at the hospital, they learned that Austin had a concussion and was recovering. But Abby was on life support after being diagnosed as brain dead. Abby was later flown to a hospital in Florida where she passed away. A week before all this happened, a 21-year-old young man named Lamont Jack Jr. had learned that he had 10 days to live. Seemingly vibrant and healthy, Lamont had actually experienced tight tension in his chest. Assuming that it was heartburn, he continued out his day, and he wasn't overly concerned until the pain became unbearable. Lamont ended up at the hospital where they did an EKG and found out that he was having a heart attack at 21 years old. With treatment, the doctors thought Lamont was on the road to recovery. Doctors actually told him that he would bounce back. But then the worst news came. His heart was actually failing. The doctors had learned that he had a viral infection and it caused inflammation and damaged his heart. And so at 21 years old, he was told he had 10 days to live. And that's when these two stories collide. Abby was an organ donor. She died on January 12th. Lamont received her heart the next day. Five months later, Abby's dad decided to embark on a 2,600-mile journey on his bike to raise money for the hospital that recovered Abby's organs. Traveling from his hometown in Madison, Wisconsin to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, John hoped that this would bring awareness and carry on Abby's story. So when John informed the, the, the hospital in Florida that uh, handled Abby's organs that he was going to do this, they decided to actually send out letters to every single person that received one of Abby's organs. The only person who responded was Lamont Jack Jr., the heart recipient. And so they were given Jack's information, uh, and they reached out to this young man several days before he started on his travel. And on Father's Day last year, 1,400 miles into his trip, John Connor met up with Lamont. Immediately, there were tears from both parties. Tears of sorrow as John felt the pain of losing his daughter. Tears of joy as Lamont met the father of the young girl who made the decision to save his life. After spending a few moments together, Lamont actually took out a stethoscope and handed it to John. John put the ear tips in his ears and the chest piece on Lamont's chest, and he listened to his daughter's heartbeat. When asked about the experience, both men talked about how bittersweet it felt. They were pained by the loss of Abby, but thankful that her death allowed others to live. When we think about death in our own lives, we think about finality, We think about loss, we think about pain, we think about sadness and grief. Scripture actually talks about death as a snare. It traps us, it destroys us. This is one of the reasons why your parents would tell you when you were a kid that your goldfish was just sleeping, or that it needed to go into the toilet so it could swim home and be with his family. Your parents didn't want to tell you that the fish was dead. They didn't want to tell you that it wouldn't eventually flip back over. They didn't want to tell you that it was secretly the fourth fish they had bought, but you hadn't noticed. 
When I was in high school, my mom actually bought me and some of my siblings a few fish. I'm not really sure why. <laughs> I didn't want to fish, but she did it anyways. Uh, in fact, uh, so she bought these fish, and I have two younger sisters, and so my first sister named hers Angel, my second sister named her Haiku, and so I named my fish Satan. <laughs> if you're wondering what like, my humor is, there it is. Um, and within a month, Satan was dead, but my mom didn't tell me. She went out and she bought another fish to replace him, but I could tell it wasn't the same fish, and so I confronted her. And she had told me she didn't want me to be sad that my fish had died. I was 17 years old. Like, I understood <laughs> And honestly, I could care less about the fish in general, so I didn't really care that Satan had died. But then, my second fish died. And so she replaced it again. And just being the punk 17-year-old that I was, I decided to start naming them after numbers. Um, and so when I had number three, we called it Twa. And then Twa died. And then I had Quattro, and then Quattro died. And I'm changing languages as well. And then number five was Foomph. And at that point, when that fish died, she stopped buying me fish. And while I tease my mom about this story... I understand why she secretly bought more fish to replace the one that had died. Because death hurts. It feels final. It reminds us that time is limited, even when it's just a fish. Leading up to Easter, we've been talking about hope. We've been reading about the end of Jesus' life through the account by John. And this is all leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection, which we'll celebrate next week at Easter. But in the last few days of Jesus' life, everything he did with his disciples was to give them hope. And it's this idea that hope was rising. Even though they didn't get it, and even though they weren't quite sure about it, you could see it slowly start to build in these stories. His followers had hope that was growing. Jesus talked about how there's hope for the world, and they knew that it wasn't going to just stay within those 12. And so this is what Jesus taught. This is how he finished his life. But in order to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, which we love to do on Easter... We also have to talk about his death. And the reality is what we read in John, what we read in, in the Bible, what it teaches us, that even though death is hard, there can be hope. And so today we're going to continue the story in John, and we're actually going to read through Jesus' death. And we're actually going to read a lot of verses today, and so it's been broken up, and I've, I'm, I'm doing my best to explain and paraphrase as we go through. But it's going to be on the screen. I would encourage you, if you have a journal or if you have your phone, break it out. We're going to be in John 18 and 19. And so ultimately, the last few weeks, we've been reading a few verses here and there, but his death takes up more than that. And we're going to start in verse 1 of John 18. This is where it begins. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. And so the last two weeks, we talked about this prayer. Like we learned that Jesus prayed right before this all happens. He prays for his disciples, that they would know that God was with them. And that he also prayed for them saying, hey, it's now it's your turn to bring that hope to the world. So after he prays, they end up in a garden, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. The story continues in John 18, 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus, Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's the one who betrayed Jesus. And Matthew, who is one of Jesus' followers, who also wrote an account of Jesus' life, actually teaches us that when Judas betrayed him, he did it with a kiss. This idea that he walked up to Jesus and kissed him to let, him, let the religious leaders know that this was the man that they came to arrest. Matthew also teaches us that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 silver coins. For context, that's about a half year's wages for them. And so for Judas, in his own mind, Jesus was worth half a year's salary. But taking it a step further, 
We also know that 30 silver coins was the cost of a slave in the Old Testament. We read in Exodus that if a slave is killed by a bull, then the owner has to pay 30 silver coins to the owner of that slave. And so if you're wondering at that time what the Jewish people thought about Jesus, if you're wondering at that time what Judas truly thought about Jesus, that sums it up. That sums it up. That teaches us that Judas didn't think Jesus was worth anything more than what slaves were worth in that time. And, and we know, through so reading some of the stories about Judas, he always struggled with Jesus. There was always a pride element. There was always this thing where he second-guessed Jesus. And the reality was, Judas thought he was better than Jesus, so he turned him in for half a year's salary. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? So remember, Jesus knows that this is going to happen. That's one of the reasons why he talked about hope, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. He said there will be grief. Some bad things are going to happen, but joy will come after that. He's foreshadowing these moments, so Jesus knows. But even though Jesus knows this is going to happen, he still asks that question. Who is it you want? And this is a classic Jesus move. He would often ask questions to people that they already knew the answer to, and he knew they knew the answer. Because he knew these soldiers were coming to capture him. He knew. He was very aware. But he still asked, who is it you want? And when we read this, people always wonder, like, okay, why would Jesus ask that, right? Like, he, he foreshadowed it. He knew it was going to come. Why ask that question? A lot of scholars believe that the reason why Jesus responds this way is meant of an indication of him volunteering himself, of him accepting this arrest. Because it's easy for him to say, okay, you're looking for me. Let's just go do this thing. But the reality is there's a process, and they have to go through it. This is also a classic parenting technique. I do this as a parent all the time with my uh, two-year-old. I'll ask her questions that I know the answer to, and I know she knows the answer to, so, but I ask her anyways, I ask, why don't we eat Play-Doh? And I want to give her the opportunity to respond to tell me why we don't eat Play-Doh, because she knows. And, and my goal as a parent is not to tell her the right answer. My goal as a parent is not to say, I know you know the right answer. It's to give her the opportunity to respond. And so that's kind of what Jesus does in this moment. He gives these people the opportunity to say out loud, the person I am looking for is Jesus, because he wants them to acknowledge that that's who they're going to arrest. The story continues. Jesus responds, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with him. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. Now this phrasing is incredibly important when he says, I am he. He's actually referencing the Old Testament and the verbiage that was used to describe who God was. There is this moment where Moses is speaking to God and Moses says, who are you? And God responds, I am. So Jesus is not so subtly telling these men that Jesus of Nazareth, that he is who that person is and that he is also God. And this is actually what forces them to the ground, the realization that the power of God and, and that the Son of God is standing right in front of them. And just in case they didn't get it the first time, he asks again, who is it you want? This is Jesus reasserting his authority. This is Jesus letting them know, like, I am God. I am the person you're looking for, but I'm also the Son. Jesus continues, if you're looking for me, then let these men go, talking about his disciples. 
And John finishes this section by saying, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. John points out that the reason why Jesus asked for his disciples to let go is because he had previously said and he previously promised that not one of his disciples would leave him except for Judas. Jesus had clarified, Judas is the one that will betray me. And, and the reason why this promise is important is because it fulfilled a promise that God made and it fulfills what scripture says in the Old Testament. And here's what's really cool about this moment. This shows that even though Judas betrayed Jesus, God was still in control. And this is true in Jesus' life through this whole process. And the reality is it can be true in ours as well. We've talked the last few weeks about how we're going to go through storms in our life. Right? Jesus teaches us there will be trouble. Jesus never says everything will be easy. That's a, it's a lie that the church loves to tell people, that if you follow him, life is perfect. It's just not true. Jesus recognizes that there will be trouble, there will be pain, there will be storms, there will be betrayal, but God can still be in control. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It just means that if you put your faith in God, God can lead you through it. So even in the broken marriage, God can be in control. Even in the, the depression and the anxiety, God can be in control. Even in the parenting struggles, God can be in control. Even in death, God can still be in control if you let him. And Jesus teaches us in this moment, even though it's betrayal, and even though he's going to get arrested, and even though he's going to die, it was all part of the plan. And so Jesus, in this moment, is betrayed. He's arrested. There's actually a little bit of a scuffle, and Peter, one of Jesus' followers, cuts off a guy's ear, and Jesus actually goes up and heals the guy. And even though that happens, they still arrest him, and they take him to trial. And the story continues in John 18. We're going to jump ahead to verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat Passover. Passover is a Jewish holiday that actually celebrates the Israelites being freed by God from slavery. And so they're actually in this season where they're supposed to be celebrating God and the freedom that he offered. And while they're doing that, they're taking his own child to trial to eventually crucify him. And they don't enter the palace. And the reason why they don't do that is because it's actually not a Jewish palace. It's a Roman palace. And the Jewish people believe that Romans were unclean. And so what John is doing in this moment, it feels small, but what John is doing is he's actually pointing out the irony that these Jewish leaders aren't willing to enter that palace, but they're more than willing to kill that man. So they bring him to Pilate. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, they would not, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And their response is, but we have no right to execute anyone. What they're showing us is that at that time when the Romans were ruling, they were the only people that could execute someone. The, the moment that they bring Jesus to Pilate, their goal is execution. It's nothing else. Because they realize, like, we can't do it, so we've got to bring him to somebody who can. It was against their law. It would make them unclean. They couldn't do it, but the Romans could. And so the intent from the beginning, when Judas betrays Jesus, it teaches us that the whole way through they wanted him dead. So that's why they bring him to Pilate. And John continues, he finishes up this section and says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Again, this is the second time that John references a promise that Jesus made. 
not just that he would die, but the kind of death he was going to die. They knew the Roman death was crucifixion. That wasn't the same death that they used in Jewish culture. And Jesus had said earlier that I would be lifted up. A lot of times we like to think that, oh, he was lifted up into heaven. The reality is he's actually talking about his own death. He'd be lifted up on a cross and killed. And Jesus knew this had to happen. This had to happen to fulfill a promise that God made and that he made to his own disciples. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus is saying to them and saying to Pilate that he is the king of the Jews. But everyone thought this meant a literal king, right? An actual king that would come and rule, that would have a palace, that would have garden, have all those things. But Jesus is clarifying, I'm not a king of, of this earth. I'm not a ruler of people, but that he's the king of the kingdom of God. He's referring to heaven. He is again referring to the fact that God is his father and he will be made king. If you are a king, or you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus says uh, the word truth, he's actually referring to himself. Jesus says earlier that he's the way, the truth, and the life. But Pilate doesn't fully understand that. He's a Roman. He's not Jewish. He didn't grow up you know, reading the Old Testament. He didn't have that knowledge. So when Jesus is talking about truth, he's thinking it's more philosophical. And so Pilate asks that question, what is truth? The implications of the question exceed too far for any person. You know, he's trying to find this answer of what's truth. It's subjective. Like, we have a different truth in this Roman culture. The Jewish people had different truths. And so Pilate realizes there's no answer to that, so I can't find him guilty. But the other part of it is, is, is Jesus didn't offer a threat to the Roman people. We, Pilate knew who he was. He knew what he had done. But, but Jesus wasn't someone going against the Romans. He wasn't going against their guard. Jesus even said, give to God what is God and give to Caesar what is Caesar. He's saying, you honor, you honor the rule, but also you honor me. And so Pilate didn't find anything against him. But Pilate also recognized that the Jewish leaders were simply trying to use him to dispose of someone who threatened their religious prestige. And so what he did is he brings Jesus out and he gives the Jewish people an opportunity to let him go. This is what Pilate says. He says, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. So Pilate actually uses a custom that the Jewish people use during Passover, giving them the opportunity to free one person, to pardon one person. And he gives them a choice. And the reality is it's supposed to be an easy choice. Barabbas was a murderer and a thief. But the people still chose Barabbas. And the reality is this is not how Pilate expected it to go. Pilate was looking at Jesus thinking, he's done nothing wrong. Pilate knew, and these Jewish people knew, that Jesus had done nothing but care for people. They'd seen him save a sick boy who was about to die. 
They'd seen him say, heal a man who has been crippled for over 30 years. They'd watched him feed people. They watched him raise a man from the dead. He had given attention and time to outcasts. Jesus had done nothing wrong. But the Jewish leaders wanted him dead because Jesus made them uncomfortable. Because Jesus challenged their priorities and their worldviews. Jesus took them out of their comfort zone. And because of that, these religious leaders would rather set Barabbas free. I know when I read this part of the story, it, it leaves this like really uneasy feeling in my gut. I remember watching this moment in The Passion of the Christ, if you guys have seen that movie, and this was a moment where I honestly, I thought I was going to throw up. The movie is incredibly brutal and, and gives as realistic of a depiction as possible of the accounts, but this for me was my moment where I just didn't think I could take it anymore. And the reason why is because these people had the opportunity to let Jesus go. That Jesus had done so much in three years, and there's always this party that wonders, what would it have been like if it was 13 years, 23 years, 33 years? And they give him this opportunity to let it go, but instead they choose Barabbas. And while it's easy to judge those people who are shouting, give us Barabbas, the reality is we do this every day in our own lives. How often do we choose Barabbas over Jesus in our own lives? Because the reality is Jesus makes us uncomfortable because Jesus challenges our priorities, because Jesus causes us to live a life where humility and putting others first is central, and, the, and we don't like that. We don't like to be challenged. We don't want to change. And so we might not say that phrase out loud, but our actions say, give us Barabbas. It happens when you're a few drinks in with your boyfriend or girlfriend, and you know you should head home and sleep in your separate beds because you know that scripture teaches us that sex before marriage is walking out of alignment with what God teaches for you and what he wants for the best marriage possible. But instead you shall give us Barabbas because you don't want Jesus interfering with your sex life. For some of you, you feel that tension right now. You have friends and family and neighbors who need to experience the grace and the good news of Jesus and they are desperate for hope. And you know that Jesus teaches his followers, we read it last week, that his followers are called to be hope for the world. And you know it's even easier right now because we're in the season where Easter's next week and everyone's looking for an opportunity to experience Jesus and to go to church. It's one of those ways that you can show up and you can check it out without feeling that there are any strings attached. But instead of inviting them, you shout, give us Barabbas. Because even though you want them to experience grace through Jesus, you don't want to get out of your comfort zone. You're too afraid to get rejected. You'd rather be comfortable. Jesus says, trust me with your finances, but you'd rather keep that part of your life secret from God and his church. You shall give us Barabbas. Jesus says that it's best to have difficult conversations face to face, but gossip is easier and it gives you the attention that you want. Give us Barabbas. You feel God pushing you to take a step, to join a collective, to start serving, to be more invested in a church community and in your community as a whole. But it's easier to be a passive follower of Jesus than to integrate him into every aspect of your life. Give us Barabbas. We love to talk about Jesus when he fits conveniently into our lives and doesn't make us feel uncomfortable. But when he starts to challenge us, we shall give us Barabbas. Because Barabbas doesn't challenge us in our priorities. He doesn't challenge us in our worldview. But here's the thing that makes Jesus and his unconditional love for us something that we can't even fully understand. Even though the people are shouting, give us Barabbas, he still doesn't stop his own execution. And the reality was that he could. But he still loved those people. 
He still wanted those people to receive grace. He still wanted those people to have the opportunity to experience salvation that would only come through him. And in order for that to happen, he had to die. So even in our own lives, as we shout, give us Barabbas, we turn our backs on God, Jesus doesn't turn his back on us. And he continues going through this execution. The story continues in John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns, the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to a place of the skull, which in Aramaic is a place called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. With him and two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Later, knowing that everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is how John finishes this section. He says, these things happened so that scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look onto the one they have pierced. I know a lot of times, like, when we read this story, it makes us uncomfortable. I know for me, like, every time I read through this, and John's version isn't as uh, in-depth as Matthew's, but I get chills because these are just the basic details of the rest, trial, beating, humiliation, crucifixion, and death of Jesus. And, and whether you believe he was the Savior of the world or not, you can recognize that this is still a terrible way to die. But one thing, if you notice throughout the story, there was one phrase that kept popping up. There's one thing that John continued to write over and over and over again. He wrote, these things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled, that this took place to fulfill what Jesus said. The entire time this was happening, Jesus knew how it was going to go down. He knew the betrayal that his friend Judas would turn him in for 30 coins. He knew the humiliation of having a fake crown put on his head. He knew the exhaustion he would experience as he had to carry a 100-pound cross. He knew the pain he would experience as they beat and flogged him. He knew the sorrow he would feel as he hung from a cross and looked upon his friends and his family. But he also knew the peace he would feel when he said it was finished. He knew the hope that his disciples would feel as they saw him crucified. Because Jesus fulfilled the promises that God made thousands of years ago. God promised his followers, God promised his people that there would be a savior that would come in the form of a child. God promised that that child would grow up to live a perfect life. He promised that that child would then be crucified on a cross as payment for our sins so we don't have to make that payment. And God promised that through faith in him, we could have eternity with God, that we could be made new. And that's why there's hope in death. Paul, one of Jesus' followers, actually later writes, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may 
we too may live a new life. And so the reality is, while the disciples had hope in that moment because everything Jesus had said had come true, every promise that he made was coming true, and they were watching it happen. Even in his death, there was hope. We learn that that hope can still be ours. It's not just a hope that they felt because they were there to watch it. It's not just a hope that we get to read and kind of walk away feeling pretty good about ourselves. The reality is we learn that through faith in him, we can spend eternity with God, that there can be hope in death. And so when Paul writes this, what he's saying is he's talking about this idea of baptism. Baptism is the immersion of yourself. It's the death of your old self and raising up of your new self. And so Paul's taking this moment that we experience with Jesus with his death, and next week when we talk about his resurrection, and he's putting us in a place where we can experience that. And he's teaching us that there's hope in death. And next week on Easter, we've talked about this last few weeks, we actually have five people who are taking that step because they want to put to death their old self so that they can be made new. And what's great is that we know many of you here are wrestling with that, are trying to figure out what that looks like. You have death in your own life. You have hopelessness in your own life. And so what we want to do is if you're in that place, we want to have a conversation. Put it on your connection card. There's a box. Or come talk to me after service because I want you to know that there is hope in death. There's hope that Jesus is the Son of God. Hope that the other promises that he made would be true. Promises of unconditional love, promises of grace, promises of life to the fullest, and promises that God is with you. There are promises that even in the darkest moments of your life, even in the most broken parts of your soul, that God is there. And his death proves that that's true. So even though you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, there's hope because you're not alone. And even though that you're scared, you're always going to be alone. There's hope because God is with you. And even though you're in a battle with addiction, there's light at the end of the tunnel because Jesus says he can overcome. Your pain doesn't have to be final. Your brokenness doesn't have to be final. And Jesus' death on a cross proves that this is true because those are the promises that Jesus made to his followers and to us. And so even though you're in a moment of your life, and, and trust me, like, you, there are people here that are in the worst types of storms right now. And we said this week one, right? You're either in a storm, you're coming out of it, or eventually you're going to be in it. And even though there are things in your life that feel dead, whether that's your own self or whether that's relationships or, or whether that's your faith in God, Jesus' death teaches us that there's still hope. That, it, that as brutal as it was and as excruciating as it was, the entire time God knew it was going to happen. God was in control. And it happened so he could fulfill a promise to his people and to us that he loves us and that he cares for us and that our own death doesn't have to be final. Let's pray. God, it feels weird to be thankful for death. But God, that we know we read this story and we see what you went through and what you experienced. But God, we also know the promises that you made. And because of that, we know that there's hope. That you weren't just another person. You weren't just a radical. You weren't a lunatic. You were somebody who was God. So God, we just pray right now for those of us who feel like we're experiencing those storms. We feel like there's death in our lives. God, that you can give us hope. That death doesn't have to feel final. It doesn't have to feel absolute. It doesn't have to be a snare that reaches up and takes us and grabs us. But God, that even in death, we can have hope. And God, ultimately, we know that comes from you and your love for us because you knew this had to happen 
so that we could have the opportunity to be forgiven. And God, we thank you for that. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.